Good afternoon. (laughs) My name is Pastor David. I'm one of the members of this church redeemed by Christ and by God's kindness and his patience. Before I became your pastor, I served university student ministry in both the United States and in the Emirates. I had this conversation about 20 years ago that has stuck with me. It exposes the foolishness, foolishness of those who rely on their ethnic identity or their religious identity as a guarantee or a pass through the judgment of God. See, Ziad was a Lebanese Christian student at the American University of Sharjah. He arrived at the Bible study a little confused and, and, and heartbroken, actually. He had just come from a debate between his Christian friends and his Muslim friends. The Christians were mocking the Muslims. They were saying things like, you can't drink because you're Muslims. We can because we're Christian. As Christians, we can sleep around with our girlfriends, but you can't because you're Muslim. Ziad knew something was wrong. And he wondered aloud with me, I know God forgives sin, but surely he can't be pleased with my Christian friends. Why do my Muslim friends seem so much better than my Christian friends? Have you ever wondered about things like that? Maybe like Ziad, you're bothered by the blatant sins of the Christian community. For instance, why is Ankawa, the Christian village around here, overrun with alcohol shops and massage parlors? Will Christians escape the wrath of God just because they bear that name? Won't the judge of the earth do right, as Genesis 18.23 says? Will he not judge fairly? What are Christians supposed to do, or what are they allowed to do to be good Christians? Well, in our walk through Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, he's just finished saying that because of wickedness, all people deserve God's wrath. That the Jews that were in that audience would have cheered. Yes! You see, generally speaking, the Jews felt they were safe from God's judgment because they were God's chosen people. But here in chapter 2, Paul begins using this literary device that he's going to use throughout the letter. You may have noticed Paul turns immediately and dramatically from the they and them of chapter 1, speaking of all people, to you. This you here is in the singular form. And it gives this impression of an imaginary conversation that Paul is having. Paul draws in the audience to see themselves as he anticipates their questions and gives answers. And he draws us in as well. In chapter 2, 1, Paul drives this same point that he made to all people back in Romans 1.20, where he said, they are without excuse. He now points it right at his Jewish audience saying, 
You therefore have no excuse. The main point here in chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 is this. You are not exempt from God's impartial justice. You are not exempt from God's impartial justice. We're going to look at this in really two main points. Uh, One, you are not exempt and to God's impartial justice. And then we'll consider a response of repentance. Now, a good Jew holding to the law of God may have been able to truly avoid idolatry and adultery that were talked about in chapter 1. But he could not, with, with honesty, escape that list that Paul gave at the end of, of chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, things like envy and strife and gossip and slander, arrogance and boasting, disobeying parents and, and a few other things. He could not have gotten through that list without some level of conviction. But why do they have no excuse? They have no excuse because, Paul says, you who pass judgment do the same things. Like the rest of humankind, they are without excuse in sin before a holy God. In other words, our first point, you are not exempt. Now, to be exempt, let me explain that, is it's to be free from something, from its responsibilities or its consequences. For instance, an NGO or a church might be exempt from taxes. An underage child might be free or exempt from adult responsibilities. Diplomats are exempt from visa requirements. There's a fight going on now in the U.S. courts over whether or not the former president should be immune or exempted in the January 6th events that happened at the U.S. Capitol. Why might these Jewish audience, why might they think they are exempt? Well, one, as we just mentioned, the Jews were chosen by God. Out of all the nations on the earth, God chose them, to make covenants with them, to give them His law, and later even to speak to them through the prophets. Special revelation through His Word revealed His character in a way of much more detail than the general revelation of creation that was given to the rest of humankind. God held the Jews in a special relationship. As, as the apple of his eye, or maybe as the Kurds around here would say, above their eyes. The, the, secondly, the Jews were to be set apart. They, God called that nation to be holy. To, that is to be special, to be set apart for him. It's why we even have these two categories of Jew and Gentile. The, the Jews were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were everybody else in the world. Well, often in our human nature, special status 
means privilege. And people with status tend to look down and pass judgment on others. This is the attitude that Paul is addressing with his Jewish audience. As God sees it, special status and special revelation don't mean a thing if one's heart remains stubborn and unrepentant. You see, Paul's word to those having access to special revelation yet remaining as wicked as the world is something that should strike fear in those from Christian background too. Are you safe just because you bear the name of Christian? Or because your heart has been changed? Which is it? Well, Paul says those who pass judgment on others, like this imaginary you that he's talking to, they have no excuse and are condemned themselves or condemning themselves because, as verse 2 says, God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. It's not based on special status, relationship, or anything else. God doesn't look the other way when His chosen people sin. We're not exempt like that. And verse 3 says, When you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now, a thoughtful Jew would understand that God judges even His own chosen people with with just a simple look back into their history. Uh, Here are two key examples. For instance, in the Exodus, 600,000 men plus women and children escaped out of slavery from Egypt through the Red Sea. It was a powerful display of God's deliverance. But not one of them, okay, only two, Only two of them over the age of 40 got to see, got to enter into the promised land. Only two. Why? Because they sinned in their travels through the wilderness. God judged them. Later, the wicked kings of Israel, this is a second example, later the the wicked kings of Israel had led God's people to sin and God gave them over first to the Assyrians and then later to the Babylonians until the time at which they would repent. We talked about that in Daniel, for those who were here for that. In these examples, you see the Jews looked no different than the nations that were around them. And yet, and yet, God continued to pursue them with the riches of His kindness and patience. That kindness, as Paul says in verse 4, was intended to lead them to repentance. His kindness is intended, it's meant to lead you to repentance. But with the Jews, time after time, as verse 5 says, they showed contempt for the riches of God's kindness. This means they disregarded His Word. They disrespected Him. 
And his kindness was met with stubborn and unrepentant hearts. This this contempt for God's kindness. It's not the bold print sins like we saw in chapter 1. Envy and murder and gossip and pride. It's subtle. It's behind the scenes. And yet it's just as evil. Like a snake hiding in the shadows. Well, this contempt became more like the lion crouching at the door, revealing itself in bold tones when Jesus came on the scene. And when the Jews there, they proudly envied His popularity among the people. They gossiped and plotted His murder. The teachers of the law showed they had no understanding, no fidelity to the Scriptures, no love, no mercy for the people Well, how does such stubborn contempt look today? What does that look like today? It's it's the Christian who refuses to forgive their neighbor who has sinned against them. Or to even give that neighbor a chance to ask for forgiveness and an opportunity to repent. It's a wife who proudly gives her husband the silent treatment Or the husband who distances himself in work or other distractions. It's a member who separates themselves from the community because they refuse to confess their sins. It's any time people hear God's word and go right on living in their sin. Friends, slay this subtle snake that slithers in the shadows. Or one day, it will rise like a lion leaping at your door. Hear the warning of Numbers 32.23 because if you fail to do this, God says, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Friends, if Paul says the Jews were storing up wrath due to the rest of humanity, then we also had better take note and make sure that we don't have that same stubborn heart, stubborn and unrepentant heart. As verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Quoting Psalm 62, Paul says, God will judge each one according to what they have done. Our sins will find us out, friends. Well, now, before we get into God's impartial judgment, I think it is important that we think more about what Paul means here about judging others. So, is, is Paul saying that we should not judge others? I mean, often that's what we hear, right? From those who are in sin, they, they say, you can't judge me. 
Or, or sometimes we ourselves hide behind it as, a, as an excuse because we, we don't want to confront another person in sin. Well, it's not my place to judge. What is the place of judging in the Christian life? Are we to judge or not to judge? Well, Matthew 7 it seems that Jesus says it quite clearly when he says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. But he continues with a parable. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when all along there's a plank in your own eye? He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all of the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The point is that when you judge others, you must first clearly see yourself repenting of your own sins so that you can rightly judge your brother. You see, the problem isn't making judgment. We do that every day. The problem is judging with a judgmental attitude. The problem is pride. It's not seeing our own sin and judging others without grace. It's looking down on others and passing judgment. So, as Christians, and perhaps more specifically as members in a local church, we are called to judge one another. But as you do, remember that the judge of all the earth is going to judge all of us also. When you judge, judge with humility because God will judge you and judge with urgency because God will judge your brother and sister too. Judge with humility and judge with urgency. Now, how different it is when Christians understanding God's grace make judgments. Two examples. Parents. I'm looking for the eyes of all the parents. When you judge your child's disobedience, consider God's discipline in your life. Consider God's discipline as revealed in the scriptures, scriptures like Hebrews chapter 12, to help you find appropriate discipline. Consider his mercy also to help you keep discipline in line with grace. Members, carrying out the biblical instruction in our covenant to encourage and warn and rebuke and admonish it means we must judge the actions of our fellow members. We must. 
We, we can't do those things if we don't employ some type of judgment. But we must do this with the right attitude. And that's why the beginning of our covenant statement says we do this walking together in brotherly love, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness. And we do all of this faithfully. We judge. But we do it with humility and urgency. Let me encourage you to think more in the fellowship groups tonight about how we are to judge one another in faithfulness, humility, and urgency in the church. And let me just complete these applications the way Paul frames it in this passage. You see, he says there, are you looking down on others in judgment while you're doing the same things? Are you? Are you looking down at others in judgment while you're doing the same sorts of things? Look, take the plank or or the, the board out of your eye first so that you can see clearly and help your brother or sister. And if you realize... Maybe, maybe you realize that you've had a judgmental attitude. You've, you've been that one looking down. Well, brother, sister, don't get upset. Don't get worried. Use that as a great opportunity to practice repentance and reconciliation. As Matthew 5.23 says, go to your brother and be reconciled. When you see your sin, it gives you a great chance to seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Let's turn now to verses 6 to 11, our second point, God's impartial judgment. The section ends with a summary in verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. That's, that's what impartial means. It means not showing one person favor over another person. Now, this, this whole section, there are a couple things that could be a little confusing. First, let's talk about favor. In verse 11, Paul says God doesn't show favoritism, but right before that, did you notice verses 9 and 10? He says twice, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Isn't that favoritism? Well, no, it's not a statement about who's better, the Jew or the Gentile. It's Rather, it reveals the pattern of God's wisdom in his revelation. You see, God chose the Jews to reveal his word, his character, and they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus came first to the Jews. And then the gospel through the disciples went to the Gentiles. The, the Jews, he says in, in the passage, 9 and 10, are, they will be both judged and rewarded first because they were chosen first. But God's judgment is right. It's true. It's fair. There's no favoritism of one over the other. Both, all, will be judged according to what they have done. God doesn't show favoritism and neither should we in the church. There's no male, no female, 
no Christian background, no Muslim background, no Hindu background. There's no rich, no poor. Brothers, sisters, we are all one in Christ. Secondly, about how God judges. Now, it seems in verse 7 that Paul is saying that he will give eternal life to those who, by persisting in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. So, does this mean that a, a person can get to heaven by doing good, even if they've never heard about Jesus? How much good does a person have to do to receive eternal life? Or, or the, even the opposite, as Paul says in verse 8 and 9, how much evil does it take for a human to receive wrath and anger, trouble and distress? What does Paul mean here? Well, in order to answer this, we have to consider context. So first, we have to remember what came before. Back in in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, we saw that we all deserve death under God's righteous decree. And then next, we need to remember what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, there is no one righteous not even one. So what is Paul saying here then in chapter 2, verses 7 to 10? What he's saying is that it's theoretically possible that if a person could live perfectly, that God would give them eternal life. But the problem is, there's no one good. No, not one. We all deserve death. Now here's a, this is a great case for why it's so important to learn how to read your Bible. Many misinterpretations and heresies come when people take one verse out of context from the whole. Uh, There's so many wonderful examples of that, but I mean we have this one here. To understand this apparent contradiction, you have to see Paul's whole argument that, that began about sin in, in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes all the way to 3, verse 20. You have to understand his whole argument there. This is why I'm doing those overviews before each major section, uh, as we then we'll get into the details. Well, so far we've had an, an overview of the whole book of Romans, And then we did an overview on sin a few weeks ago. Don't miss the overviews as we continue going through Romans. And you might even be helped to go back and listen to them on the podcast. I also want to encourage you to consider joining Pastor Andre's new manuscript Bible study, which will be starting up soon. You'll not only learn how to read Scripture in its context, but you'll also learn how to uh, observe, interpret, and apply the Scripture for yourself. Look for details coming out soon because we we don't actually have those just yet, but jump on the opportunity when it comes up to learn how to study God's Word. Now, coming back to our passage, it says that God will judge... Verse 6 says, He will repay each according to what they have done. 
And that verdict, my friends, is death. Death and eternal punishment. Because no human lives persistently good, as verse 7 described. And yet, there was one who did live persistently good. One who sought glory and honor, but not his own. God's. One who pursued immortality, but not for himself. For those whom he loves. It leads to our third, third point, a response of repentance. You see, Jesus is that one who lived persistently good. As First Peter chapter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. With love as vast as the ocean, Jesus went to the cross. He laid down his perfectly good life to die the death that we deserved. And as the lines of that song, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, said, Jesus hushed the loud thunder of the law. He put out Mount Sinai's terrifying flame. When we, through grace, put our trust in Christ, the justice of God smiled and it asked for nothing more from us. Jesus satisfies the justice of God on our behalf. There's no more to be done. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. With great power, the great power of God, Jesus burst from the grave on the third day with victory over sin and death in the grave. And the eternal life that He was given, He freely offers to those whom He calls. Paul says it so well in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. He says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. (laughs) You know, if you've never known kindness and love like this, they're found in Jesus. God's kindness to you, my friend, is that you're now hearing this message. You're surrounded by people who know this love and would be happy to tell you more about Him. How will you respond? Will you just sit there stubborn in your sin, once again hearing about God's mercy towards sinners and yet doing nothing? Or will you come to Him with a repentant heart? Turn from your sin and self. Believe in Jesus. As Psalm 66, 8 says, that, that psalm that was read earlier, trust in Him at all times, you people. 
pour out your heart to Him. For God is our refuge. Run to Him. Christian, what does a response of repentance look like for you? Well, first, first, a word to those who would call themselves Christian, but have a pattern of unrepentance. Look, such a show of contempt for God's kindness puts you in grave danger. Like the Jews who didn't respond to Jesus, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. You will be in the greatest danger because you think you're safe. You think you're okay, but you're not. So Christian, person who call yourself Christian, if you don't repent of your sin, you are in great danger. And I would call you just to turn, repent, put your trust in Jesus. Turn from that destructive path before it's too late. But I know most of you here. I know most of you. You're moved to repentance by God's kindness and love. His kindness is is intended even now to lead us to repentance. Even now. So press into the riches of His kindness that far exceeds the weight of your sin. Don't hide your sin from God. Examine yourself. What lingering sin is God in His kindness calling you to turn from right now? The temporary pleasure of sin, especially that, that the pride of self-righteousness looking down on others and judgment that this passage speaks about, that's nothing compared to the treasures of His eternal love. Believer, remember how He mercifully saved you. Your soul was purchased by His blood. Your life is now hid in Christ. So whatever sin you're actively fighting, Christian, that doesn't define you. Whatever anxiety you feel, that doesn't define you. That's not who you are. No, it's, it's, Psalm 103.13 reminds us we are His children. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Believer, your hope is in Christ. And in the Gospel fact that God's impartial judgment is based is that that when you face God's impartial judgment you will face it on the basis of Christ's righteousness that has been given to you that conversation i had with Zed 20 years ago that stuck with me it's a reminder that we're not exempt from God's impartial judgment we're not free to just live our lives any which way we desire without regard for the consequences. 
the, the path through God's judgment is found in Christ and in His righteousness. And as Matthew says, we are to seek His kingdom and His righteousness first. His righteousness comes through faith in the kindness and the love of God. A kindness that leads us to a lifelong response of repentance. Saints of God, Christ is our strong and perfect plea before the throne of God. Before the throne of God's impartial justice. Let's pray. And we're going to actually conclude with that song, Before the Throne of God Above. Pray with me. Father God, you, you are our salvation and our refuge. And, and you don't treat us as our sins deserve, but in great love, you removed our sins from us. Through faith, Christ has given us his righteousness. So that when we stand before your throne, before that throne of impartial judgment, we will be given your promise of eternal life. Oh Lord, what joy, what wonder. We praise your name for what you are doing in us and the hope that we have in eternal life. In Christ's name, amen.